Zechariah 13, 7 to 9. The purging of the remnant by means of the shepherd being struck. 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Amen. The prophets, as they typically do, they alternate between blessings and cursings. They alternate between oracles that are addressed to the righteous, the elect, the believers, and then those that are in reference to the reprobate and the wicked. We've seen in the previous passage that the primary attention that God had in verses 2 to 6 had to do with how he's going to destroy and punish the wicked, the unrepentant sinners, in verses 2 to 6. But now in 7 to 9, he's addressing or explaining what will happen to the believers, to the elect, to the shepherd, um, or, or to the sheep of the shepherd. That's in verses 7 to 9. In verse 7, we have a prophecy that the great shepherd, the good shepherd, will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered. And then in verse 8, we have an, ex, uh, an explanation of the remnant. The Bible describes the remnant or the few who believe by different analogies and illustrations. And in verse 8, the remnant is explained as the third part, the one-third that remains. And this remnant, according to verse 9, will be tested by fire because their faith has to be tested Tested by the fire of affliction, in the furnace of affliction, verse 9. But ultimately, they will persevere, and they will call on the name of the Lord from beginning to end. God will answer their prayers. God will be their God, and we will be His people. This is what Zechariah prophesies here in verses 7 to 9. Back to verse 7. God the Father is the speaker. He has to be the speaker because he is saying that it is my shepherd, my associate. My shepherd, my associate. And even the the NASB understands that God has to be the speaker because of the uppercase M of my shepherd and my associate. So it is God the Father who is the speaker in verse 7, 7 and following. But then we should also note that verse 7 is one of the many explicit Christological or Messianic passages of the Old Testament. One of the most explicit Christological prophecies of the Old Testament. And even the NASB, we make note of the translators of the NASB, they capitalize the S 
of shepherd in verse 7. They capitalize the A of associate and also the S of shepherd again, twice in verse 7. This means that if my, the M of my is capitalized and the S and the A are capitalized of shepherd and associate, then we have deity. We have deity because the NASB puts in uppercase letters those references, whether nouns or pronouns, in reference to deity. That is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not to false gods, but to the true God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which means in verse 7, we have the Father making an, an assertion or announcing a decree against his son called my shepherd, my associate. One clarification we have to add here is in verse 7 when it says against the man. The NASB should have capitalized the M of man. Here they do not do so, but they do it in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. Acts 17, 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. The NASB, they make uppercase H's and M in reference to the Father and the Son. And in 31, an uppercase M for man. And even by raising him, him from the dead, the H of him is uppercase, which means it is the Son, the Father and the Son in verse 31, Acts 17, 31. But the NASB failed to do so in Zechariah 13, 7. It should be that way there. Now, there are a couple of explanations as to why they failed to do it. Uh, the likely case in this passage, Zechariah 13, 7, has to do with how the books of the Bible were, were not all translated by one scholar or one translator. Usually with a big project like this and the typical translations, KJV, NKJV, ESV, NASB, NIV, with these big translations, there is usually a committee of scholars for the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there are multiple scholars who translate the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are assigned particular books of the Bible to translate. And then there will be an editor who oversees parts of the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament. And then a final editor who oversees the whole project. If the editors miss inconsistencies, then they get printed, like in our Bible. But if the editors catch the inconsistencies and make it uniform, make it the same everywhere, then these inconsistencies would be eliminated. This is likely the reason, because the translator of 13.7 did capitalize S and A of shepherd and associate. He should have done so for the M of man, like Acts 17.31. Okay, having established that, that we have the Father and the Son here in verse 7. The Father says 
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Why should the sword awake? As though the sword was a person. And God is arousing, awakening a person in order to use the sword against his shepherd. Well, the Bible often personifies inanimate objects. The Bible often personifies inanimate objects, such as in Judges chapter 9, one of the sons of Gideon, the one that remained, he spoke a parable, and in his parable, he had the trees as speakers. He makes the olive tree a speaker, and he makes the bramble a speaker, he makes the vine a a, a speaker, and as though they are persons with wills and minds talking to each other and contemplating what to do. And that's all that's happening here with God. In terms of the personification, that's what he's doing. But also, it's a personification in that God is the one sovereignly in control of what wicked men do with their swords. Because it is a wicked man or a group of wicked men who will wield the sword against Christ. They will wield the sword to arrest him. They will wield it to pierce his side. They will wield it in order to threaten his disciples and put him on the cross. In that sense, they will wield the sword. Ezekiel 21. Let's turn to Ezekiel 21 where the Lord also personifies the sword. He does so throughout the chapter. Throughout the chapter. And in this case, it's very clear that God is in control of the sword. So that what happens to Christ is no accident, but it happens by the sovereign purpose of God. Ezekiel 21, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and speak against the sanctuaries and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I shall draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Because I shall cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, therefore my sword shall go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus all flesh will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It will not return to its sheath again. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief. Groan in their sight. And it will come about when they say to you, Why do you groan? That you will say, Because of the news that is coming, and every heart will melt. All hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it comes and it will happen, declares the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, say, A sword, a sword, sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice the rod of my son despising every tree? And it is given to be polished that it may be handled. The sword is sharpened and polished to give it into the hand of the slayer. 
Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh, for there is a testing. And what if even the rod which despises will be no more, declares the Lord God. And this analogy and this use of the sword, it continues until the end of the chapter where God is using the sword in a picturesque way, illustrating the fact that he's in control of it. It's actually his sword, even if it is used by wicked men. For example, in verse 19, it will be used by the king of Babylon. As for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them will go out of one land and make a signpost Make it at the head of the way to the city, and so forth. God puts his sword into the hand of the king of Babylon so that he wields it and uses it to kill people and threaten people. This is the way he's speaking in Zechariah 13.7. How do we know that he's speaking this way? Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Acts chapter 4, and we'll read 23 to 28. Acts 4, 23. And when they had been released, they they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. After quoting from Psalm 2, these disciples in verse 27, they say that this was all ordained, all according to God's purpose and predestination, according to His hand, His powerful hand, to put into the hand of Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to crucify Christ, to use the sword and the power of execution by crucifixion to kill Christ. This is also Isaiah 53.10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord... The Father was pleased to crush the Son, putting him to grief. How so? By means of the wicked. And it is God who aroused or awakened the sword at the right time. He predicted that there would be such redemption in Genesis 3.15. To destroy the works of the devil in Genesis 3.15 and 1 John 3.8. But in due time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law. That's Galatians 4.4, at the right time. And so God awakened this sword to act against his son at the right time. We see here, it says, against my shepherd. He is God's shepherd because he is the supreme shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Psalm 23.1, John 10.10 to 18. He is the supreme and good shepherd because he is the shepherd of God. Christ being called shepherd, it first occurs actually in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 48, 48, 15 and 16, where Jacob calls Christ a shepherd. We're speaking of Jacob who is blessing the Uh, Joseph and Joseph's sons, and he recollects what God did in his life. 48.15, And he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, may the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, may the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob calls on God. That's clear in verse 15, twice he calls on God. But then in 16, he's still referring to God, but he calls God his angel. May the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the lads the two sons of Joseph. These words are interchangeably used, which means that he must be referring to Christ, who is the angel or messenger of the Lord in the Old Testament. Then chapter 49, 49, 24. 49, Genesis 49, 24. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Both shepherd and stone are uppercase in the NASB, showing that they believe this is messianic, Christological. Christ is this shepherd. Further, he's not only the shepherd, shepherd of the sheep, which analogy will continue in this passage in the last part of verse 7. But he's also called the man. He has these three names or titles here, shepherd and man. He's not a man yet, But he will become a man. Yes, in a few occasions in the Old Testament, when he appeared in his pre the pre-incarnate Christ, when he appeared, he appeared in the form of a man. That happened a few times. But he did not actually become a man until Matthew chapter one, verses eighteen to twenty-five. 
until he was born of Mary. He did not actually become a man. But he's no ordinary man because Matthew 1, 18 to 25 describes him and also uh, Luke chapters 1 and 2 describe him as born of a virgin. Therefore, a sinless man with no original sin and no actual sin, according to Hebrews 4.15. This is the perfect man. He was not a man before this prophecy and before the incarnation, but he is called a man because this is a prophecy of what will happen. Just as strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered did not yet happen either. But now that he has become a man in his incarnation, he still has a human nature. The Son, being deity, always possessed and retained his deity. But then in the incarnation, he assumed manhood, perfect manhood, and that perfect manhood is now immortal. He still has a body of flesh. It's an immortal body, but he still has it. How do we know he still has a body? This doctrine is very important because it's not only in the Bible, but it relates to our own resurrection. We know this because of Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11. After he was raised from the dead, and just as he is ascending, we read... Here in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. As he ascended bodily, he will descend bodily, according to Acts 1, 9 to 11. Philippians chapter 3, 3, 20 to 21. Philippians 3, 20. When he returns, what will happen? For our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. When we see Him, we are eagerly awaiting His return. That's in verse 20. We are eagerly awaiting His return. And it says that our humble body, being mortal, will be transformed and become a glorious body, like His body is glorious, immortal. Our mortal will become immortal, just as his mortal body, without sin, became an immortal, glorified body. That's only true if he currently has an immortal, physical body. 
Also, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. He's called the man Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy, after the ascension, we should also note that Acts 17.31, which we already read, says that God appointed a man and has furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17 is years later after Acts chapter 1. He's still known as a man because now he is a glorified man. This means that Zechariah preaches the perfect manhood of Christ. Zechariah 13, 7. We know he's speaking of that because he will be dying for our sins according to what we saw in chapter 12, verse 10. He's going to die for our sins, be pierced for our sins, piercing with a sword for our sins. Further, though, in 13.7, we have another phrase, a very important phrase, my associate. My associate. Well, what is an associate? An associate is an equal. An associate is an equal. And this term in the Old Testament, it's used only here of Christ, but elsewhere it occurs ten times in the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, this term, Hebrew term, is rendered there, companion, it's rendered neighbor, and it's rendered friend. Companion, neighbor, friend. In this case, associate. We get the idea, clear idea, that the man is equal to the father. Just as our companions in terms of human nature our neighbors in terms of human nature, our friends in terms of human nature, they are our equals. We're all humans. Correct? So in this case, 13.7, God has an equal. God has a friend, a companion, a neighbor, or here, associate. Who could that be? It's not the angels. It's not a single angel. It's not the angels. It's not a single angel. It's not another God because there is only one God. Correct? There is only one God. So this must be a reference to the Son, the Son of God who has deity. The fact that there is only one God and there is no equal to Him, we find this in Isaiah 46, 5 to 7. Isaiah 46, 5. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. 
There is no equal to God. We cannot compare God to any other God because there's only one true and living God. And if that's the case, this associate has to be the Son, Christ, who is equal to the Father. This is, is this not what Jesus taught? He said in John 5, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. John 5, 17 and 18. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 10, verse 30. John 10, 30. I and the Father, we are one. 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why? Because of verse 33. The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. That's why they wanted to stone him, because he was making himself out to be God. He was claiming deity. Well, he possesses deity in truth, according to Zechariah 13.7, and many other scriptures, such as the ones we just saw in John 5 and in John 10. The Lord continues, the Father continues, and he says, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. This is a further command or decree for the sword to strike the shepherd. Which shepherd? The shepherd of verse 7, my shepherd, the man, my associate. This shepherd who possesses full deity and full humanity, yet without sin, is to be put to death for our sin, according to Zechariah 12.10 and 13.1. He is supposed to be pierced. He is supposed to be the fountain that will cleanse from sin and impurity. How does that happen? By being struck down. This is clearly uh, uh, quoted in Matthew 26, 31, and also in Mark. Let's first see Matthew 26 and verse 31, where the apostle quotes Christ and Christ is referring to our verse, Zechariah 13, 7. 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. When it says, I will strike down the shepherd, this is actually a conflation in the sense that it's the Father who says, 
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. It is the Father who says, Strike the shepherd. And it is the Father who says, And I will turn my hand against the little ones. So it's the Father, ultimately, who's in charge and who's in control of the crucifixion of Christ. Not the wicked men, but God the Father. And we know in this passage, in Matthew 26, 35, it says, Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. But then once he was arrested, Matthew 26, 56. Matthew 26, 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They all left him and fled. The same is recounted in the book of Mark. Mark 14, Mark 14, 27. Mark 14, 27 to 31. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you yourself this very night before a rooster crows twice shall deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing too. Down to verse 50, 14, 50, 50. And they all left him and fled. So the prophecy was fulfilled. He was struck and the sheep were scattered. They fled. Temporarily they fled because they regrouped and Peter and John especially, they both came in proximity of some of the last moments in the life of Christ as well as some of the women. They were nearby and witnessing, eyewitnesses of the last hours of Christ. The quotes from Matthew and Mark where Jesus quotes this passage, make it absolutely clear that this is an explicit reference to Christ. This verse has to be an explicit reference, prophecy of Christ, 500 years before it actually happened. Further, it's saying in verse 7, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It is God's hand turning against the little ones. God's hand. God, He is working here in order to test, purify His little ones, which purification is made explicit in verses 8 and 9, especially at the beginning of verse 9. That's what he's doing here when he's turning his hand against the little ones. In the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, 
Isaiah 1 and verse 25, we have a similar phrase. Isaiah chapter 1. Let's actually read from 24 to 26. Isaiah 1, 24. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. God is going to punish his adversaries, but he's also going to purge them or cleanse them. He's going to put them through fire and he's going to use soap on them or lye. Lye is the essential ingredient of soap. And this is how God is turning against the people. He's turning against them in that he's fighting against their flesh to cleanse them of their fleshly remnants. Then they will be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. That's similar to what Zechariah is preaching here. Uh, We also note that the disciples are called the little ones. The disciples are called the little ones. Matthew 18. This phrase is picked up, is from this passage and picked up by Christ in Matthew 18. Shall we read 1 to 6? Matthew 18, 1 to 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. The disciples, like a child, they are called little ones. Little ones who believe in me. Verse 6. Little ones who believe in me. He's not talking about infants. He's talking about men or people who are humble like a little child. Humble and helpless like a little child. 1810. 1810. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. And also 1814. 1814. Thus it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Which is a promise that even though the little ones are purged or purified by the trials and temptations of the earth, they will never perish. As even Zechariah is saying, 
by verses 8 and 9, a third part will be left and the third part will be refined as gold and silver is refined. But the pure part of the gold and silver, it's not thrown away. It doesn't perish. Only the dross or alloy, that is thrown away, but not the pure silver and pure gold. And then we also find in the book of Luke, in the book of Luke chapter 12, 12.32, where Christ speaks, he says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. He calls the flock a little flock. And this little in reference to them being the remnant. Not in terms of being little children, but being a remnant. And both of these analogies are here also in Zechariah. The analogy of shepherd and sheep, and also the analogy of little children. In those ways, Zechariah speaks. And in those ways, often the Bible will use two or more metaphors in a given passage. Okay, a clear messianic prophecy in Zechariah 13.7. God the Father and Son. The Son is a shepherd. He's a perfect man. He also has a divine nature, nature equal with the Father. The sovereign God is ultimately in control. Not wicked men, not even righteous men, but only God the Father or Ultimately, God the Father, He is the one guiding and making sure these things happen. And all for our salvation and sanctification. The striking down of the shepherd has to be because of Him being pierced, Zechariah 12.10, and Him being a fountain for cleansing of sin and impurities, Zechariah 13.1. But then after he is struck down and the sheep are scattered, then the sheep, the little ones, must be a part of the remnant, verses 8 and 9. And that remnant will be purified. It will be further cleansed in sanctification through trials, tribulations, persecutions. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.